Welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Chloe. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Because this is the first episode of October, y'all know I had to bring you something ghoulish. Oh, something spooky? So, well, I, spooky, but definitely ghoulish. Okay. All right. So I'm going to try something a little different that I hope you'll enjoy. Um, Folks in the Victorian era had a lot of really bizarre, iconic beliefs and customs around death. Mm -hmm. So today I've brought some actual newspaper articles from that time that really emphasize what a gloriously like death wacky time it was. Okay. So a lot of a lot of this stuff like we, we need to bring this back like this is they're just crazy. So let's jump right in. I'm going to start with a fun job I've never heard of, Tombstone Sensor. Hmm. So this is from the Harrisburg Patriot of June 22nd, 1905. A tombstone sensor is employed by most large cemeteries. It is the duty of this man to see that nothing unseemly in the way of a tombstone is put up. A young engineer in a Norristown mill was killed by the explosion of a boiler, and the family of this young man, believing that the mill owners had known all along that the boiler was defective, actually had carved on the tombstone the sentence, Murdered by his masters. The tombstone censor, of course, refused to sanction such an epitaph. On the death of a certain noted prize fighter, the surviving brother of the man wanted to put in a glass case beside the grave a championship belt, four medals, a pair of gloves, and other triumphs of the ring. But the censor's negative was firm. (laughs) A widow who believed that the physician was responsible for her husband's death wished to put on the tomb, he employed a cheap doctor. (laughs) But the tombstone censor showed her that such an inscription would lay her open to heavy damages for libel. Mm. Atheists sometimes direct their wills that shocking blasphemies be carved on their monuments. The censor, however, sees to it that these blasphemies do not disfigure the cemetery. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know if that's like still a thing. If you can like kind of put like, could you carve a penis into a piece of marble and have that be the tombstone? (laughs) Like if that was somebody's final wishes, like. I would assume probably not. Probably not. Right. So maybe somebody still has the job of tombstone censor. Well, I guess it depends because. I assume now there's probably like specific rules and regulations mm, when you mm-hmm. sign up to have your to reserve your plot. Right, like it's in the contract. Yeah, so you don't no necess- penises, no blasphemies, and right. no libel. Yeah, probably it's like their top three. Yeah, and and I would assume a part of it might be like, well, we want to keep. We want to keep the the whole cemetery looking a certain way. We don't want something that's just crazy in there that's going to throw off the whole aesthetic, such as Nicolas Cage's yeah. uh, pyramid, Obsidian mm-hmm. Pyramid mm-hmm. in New Orleans, is it? That's Yes, it is. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Because New Orleans cemeteries, like, it's a very specific vibe. Yeah. And to all of a sudden have this giant pyramid, it's just like, um, what? Right. Yeah. I don't so, know, man. I, I would assume that the censor has been um, removed and replaced by a lawyer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But I could be wrong. 
I mean, we'll find out. Guys, if you know, please write in. FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com. Are you a tombstone censor? Let us know. Yeah. All right. So famously, the death of a loved one in Victorian times meant wearing mourning clothes for months, sometimes years, depending on your relationship to the corpse in question. This meant wearing all black, no jewelry or adornments. And for women, it meant wearing black veils to conceal yourself anytime you were going to be seen by anyone but your closest family members. Mm. Predictably, there were some people who weren't very into that. So here's testimony from one such person printed in the Kansas City Times on October 16th, 1885. I predict the extinction of the mourning veil, said a handsome widow in the hearing of a daily news reporter as she unfastened the flowing cumbersome badge of grief and hung it wearily on her arm. Physicians, you know, have always cried out against the wearing of crepe. They declare it to be one of the worst things possible for a grief-stricken mind. The very weight of a heavy crepe veil is enough to depress one. And I don't mind telling you, they are the very worst things to manage. The first time I ventured out into a streetcar with my long veil settled it. I caught it in the door when I entered, and as I seated myself, (laughs) nearly jerked my bonnet off my head. The conductor released the veil, and as I prepared to gather it about me, a fat woman put her foot through it, and a horrid young man opposite grinned. By far, the most complete mourning effect is produced by a costume composed entirely of veiling. Really, it just makes a woman look as if she could never smile again. (laughs) (laughs) This lady had her bonnet snatched off her head by the doors in the streetcar, and she is done. It sounds like she just had a very bad morning, and she was just like, you know what? I'm done with Mm -hmm. this. Yeah, I'm bringing down the whole system, baby. Yeah. Had it. She's had it. (laughs) now there are a couple of reasons to be against morning clothes obviously that being one of them the first comes from a book called manners and social usages that was published in 1887 people with weak eyes or lungs must not wear a heavy crepe veil over the face it is loaded with arsenic and is most dangerous to sight and breath oh my madam that is an understatement if i've ever heard one like yeah, arsenic is not at all conducive to being able to breathe. You're 100% right. Yeah. So that was just in the dye that they were using. Arsenic was just part of the black dye, and it's smothering you all day long. Yeah, that's yeah, that's not ideal. No. Another valid reason to not be on board with morning clothes can be deduced from this helpful tutorial found in an 1849 issue of Godey's Magazine. Hmm. ladies that wear mourning in the summer are much incommoded by the blackness it leaves on the arms and neck and which cannot easily be taken off by mere soap and water to have a remedy always at hand keep on your washing stand a box or gala cup with a cover containing a mixture in equal portions of cream of tartar and oxalic acid Get at a druggist half an ounce of each of these articles and have them mixed and pounded together in a mortar. Put some of this mixture into a gala cup and moisten it slightly with a little water to prevent its after a while becoming too dry and hard and cover it closely. To use it, wet the black stains on your skin all over with water and then with your finger rub a little of the mixture. Then immediately wash it off with water and afterwards with soap and water. The black will thus entirely disappear. 
Oh my gosh. If you're wondering what oxalic acid is used for today, it's most commonly a solvent that removes rust from metal. So they're burning mm-hmm. these stains off of their skin. Yeah. And obviously taking it off immediately with water because if they left it on too long. Mm-hmm. It's going to like just eat right through your skin. See, that's what's so crazy is like everything was poisonous in the Victorian <laughs> era. Like everything was like either poison or cocaine pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And so if even in like what year was that again? 1849. Even in 1849, they're like, okay, make sure you wash this off immediately. Like that's really bad. That's like yeah. as bad as it can be. So why was it that, I mean, I'm sure, th- I'm sure folks had dark clothes, right? So why is this different? Because it had to be solid black. And what a lot of people would do instead of buying black clothes, which some people did buy black clothes, but a lot of what you would do, especially if you're a widow, because the assumption is that you will now be in mourning for the rest of your life. You won't remarry. You won't you know, rejoin society, whatever, is that you will take all of the clothes you own right now and dye them black because you'll oh. never not need black again. Oh, yeah. Was it a stigma to wear black? Because you might be it, mistaken as one of those horrid widows. I mean, it, it wasn't a stigma necessarily, but like all black was reserved for mourning. It was just uh-huh. like kind of a, a social custom. If someone sees you in all black, they're going to treat you as though you're in mourning. So you just wouldn't dress that way. Okay. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of rules around somebody else dying for whatever reason. I believe it. Yeah. So... You're, you've been breathing arsenic all day long. It's left like arsenic stains on your skin and now you need to burn it off with a rust remover. This is like <laughs> very normal. Yeah. Now, it wasn't just people, though, who dressed in mourning. Black crepe was also put on the home of the recently deceased to mark their passing. This naturally led to shenanigans. <laughs> From the August 29th, 1868 edition of the Boston Traveler, A St. Louis husband, after a quarrel with his wife, took a singular revenge by putting crepe on his door and announcing her death. This so enraged the lady that she immediately eloped with an affinity. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. So they had a huge fight. He was like, I'm just going to tell everybody you're dead. I'm sick of it. Like, I'm so sick of you. And she's like, okay, I'm dead to you, bitch. Bye. And ran off with her boyfriend. So, so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) it's pretty petty it's pretty petty but get this a similar yet to me like more sinister feeling story Mm. comes from the commercial advertiser on november 27th 1874 a little six-year-old maiden in norwich last week was reprimanded by her father for something and being indignant thereat went out and tied crepe on the front door remarking now everyone will wonder as they go by who is dead in our house. Jeez. This kid is a ghoul. A little twerp. Uh-huh. He's <laughs> like, you know what? You need to eat your vegetables or you cannot have any weird Victorian cake. And she's like, really? Now everybody's going to think I'm dead. Are you happy? That's that's like the equivalent of putting a, of, of sending in a false obituary and having yeah. people show up at your house with food. Yeah. And be like, oh. We thought you were dead. You know, as always, there is an episode of the Golden Girls for this. Oh. There's an episode where, like, I'm pretty sure it was Blanche. Like, somebody, like, prints an, uh, an obituary by mistake. 
like somebody with a similar name to Blanche Devereaux. <laughs> and so she starts getting all these calls and flowers from all these men who are just broken hearted. Oh no, Blanche Devereaux is dead. And like, once it gets cleared up, she kind of like misses the attention. <laughs> of course. Just like, of course she does. Cause she's Blanche. That's funny. So we know what the mourners and their houses are wearing, but what about the dead themselves? Hmm. Shrouding was the hotness at this time. A lot of women even made their own shrouds, not because they were sick or had premonitions of death, but just as like a normal thing you did because you would need it eventually. You eventually sure. you're going to die. You'll need a shroud. Yeah. You don't want to be an inconvenience to anyone else because you're a woman in the Victorian era. So you just make your own shroud. Right. Like, I mean, death was a more personal experience back then because mm-hmm. you didn't have funeral homes. Right. There was no there wasn't a lot of industry with death like there is today. This is like the Victorian era is when it started. Yeah. When death became an industry for sure. So, I mean, like when someone died you did have to do a lot of things. Oh yeah. You 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 may have to um have someone make your own make the casket. Right, yeah. Cuz I don't, I don't even know if they were I don't even know if you could get a commercially made casket at that time if it was like made to order. I don't know if there were people making it, mm-hmm. but you certainly had to take care of the body. Right. Yourself. You, you displayed it in your home. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's it was it was a much more hands-on time. Oh with yeah. Death for sure. But not everyone had the time or the inclination to make their own shroud. Okay. See, you know, everything's not for everybody. And sometimes those left behind were responsible for going out and buying a shroud. Hmm. Here's a piece from the Cincinnati Inquirer from February 21st, 1868. This morning we were made acquainted with a few facts in relation to a singular affair which occurred in the West End a few days ago. It seems an elderly lady living in that part of the city had been sick for some months past, and a few days ago she fell into a stupor and was supposed to have died. Her husband, believing she had passed from this world, began to make the usual preparations for burial, and with this end in view, came up to town and purchased the material to make the shroud. Upon his return home with his purchase, he was astonished and horrified to find his wife, whom he had left for dead, not only alive, but sitting propped up in her bed, looking better than she had for some months. Oh. As a matter of course, he was agreeably surprised and lost no time in putting the linen he had bought for his wife's shroud in some secret hiding place to prevent her being painfully reminded of the fact that he had been in such haste to dispose of her body. Mm. <laughs> that is awkward you come home you're just like whistling like kind of doing a little dance down the street with your linen you walk in she's alive and it's just like uh, this is nothing don't look here how are you feeling you quickly toss it into the shrubs yep while her back is turned yep that's a little embarrassing it is awkward that is an uncomfy conversation to need to have now real quick yeah I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but can you clarify exactly what a shroud is in this context? In this context, I mean, it's basically just like a white linen, like a, a big piece of cloth that you would wrap around the body. Like it's not an outfit. It's not a veil, really. But it's like the wrappings that you would put over somebody. So the body is dressed right and you put this around them and you can still see the body yeah because it's it's linen it's usually like a really loose knit fabric so it's like sheer you can still see them but you would probably put it on before 
like between visitation and the burial but like if say people are looking at them in their coffin they would already have their shroud is it to inspire like an ethereal property to them or i don't know it does seem to me that it because it was like a trend really that it is more about optics than because it's i mean what's a piece of linen doing it's not like preserving the body like mummy's wrappings or something you know like well it makes me think of people who like dress up as obi-wan kenobi at comic-con but then they put a blue <laughs> shroud around them so yeah. they look like a force ghost right yeah they, they were just <laughs> they wanted all their bodies to look like force ghosts okay well it's interesting that you mentioned that because that's the reason why the the sort of stereotypical ghost is just you put a sheet over yourself it's really? a shroud yeah that like that image of a ghost is from the victorian times when they were using shrouds as if the body got up and was walking around. With the shroud, the yep. Shr- really? Yes. That is a shroud. Yep. What? I Today didn't know I that. learned. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Isn't that fun? If you learned that for the first time, please <laughs> let us know because I certainly did. Yeah. So that's there. You know, I probably could have just said that. That's what a shroud is. Picture, picture a ghost with a sheet on. There you go. Shroud. Boom. but let's let's shift gears now to something that's more my speed which is wacky mishaps with dead bodies oh fantastic yay so this story comes from the louisville courier journal on july 23rd 1894 this one's a little bit longer i mean it's not terrible but just kind of stick with me here i'm not a believer in the supernatural said a young man to a writer for the courier journal But every time I see a copy of Wilkie Collins' novel, The Woman in White, I get the creeps, for it recalls one of the most awful experiences in my life. I boarded in the southern portion of the city at the home of a widow in whose family was an interesting youth about 16 years old. He and I were exceedingly fond of one another, perhaps from the fact that he was afflicted with epilepsy and I was the only person about the house who understood how to relieve him and was able to handle him without his hurting himself while in convulsions. He did not live long after I knew him and died in my arms in one of his attacks. The incident I am speaking of occurred on one of the very coldest nights in January. The boy had died at noon and the family sat up with the corpse until midnight when I relieved them in the watch, requesting all to retire, as I loved the boy so well I felt it my duty to stay near him in death. An hour passed and I picked up a copy of The Woman in White to while away the somber watch. I drew near the fireplace and turned up the lamp a little higher as the rest of the room was very dark and a window was raised back of the corpse on the cooling board. After all had gone to bed, the realization of the somber situation obtruded itself upon me and as I perused the novel, its contents were not calculated to reassure me. I thought about everything possible, and for the first time in my life, I began to quake with fear. I was in such a condition of mind that the dropping of a pin would have been noted at once, (laughs) and the creaking of a piece of furniture or the swaying of a shutter would have sent terror through my heart. In this overwrought state of mind, I heard a light noise and turned toward the corpse when, awful to relate, I saw my friend raise his hands, throw back the shroud, and sit stark upright. The eyes, which had never been closed, looked searchingly about the room until they rested on me, the open mouth contracted, and the countenance took a distorted expression. 
Without pausing, I dashed from the room into the dark corridors. When I think of that awful scene, even in daytime, I am filled with terror. I have never got into The Woman in White farther than three chapters, and I do not think now that I shall ever finish the story that is so intimately associated with this awful ghost story in real life. Whoa. Whoa. That is creepy. It is very uncomfy. Yeah. Yeah. Don't love that. Don't love that. I love the fact that he's just like, you know, I got about three chapters into the book, but I'm just going to have to call it because I have never been more terrified in my life. I feel you. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Okay, but here's the thing. All of that was just a lead up to the thing I really want to talk about. And that's all the like wild ways that people died during the Victorian era. <laughs> There's like some crazy deaths. Like, I don't know why this period of time was so cuckoo bananas, but it really was. All right. All right. So these first three stories come from the Yorkshire Evening Post. So these three are from England. The rest are American newspapers. This first one is dated November 22nd, 1922. A verdict of accidental death was returned by the Leeds coroner at an inquest today on George Arthur Appleton, 46, railway signalman of Noel Parade, Hare Hills, who died at the Leeds infirmary yesterday as a result of being knocked down by a train on the northeastern railway line just outside Leeds on the previous day. Richard Herbert, signalman, who relieved Appleton at the signal box, said he saw him go toward Leeds station on the four-foot way. He noticed that a train coming from Marsh Lane was almost on top of Appleton, and he shouted, Look out, George! But it was too late. When he saw the engine would inevitably go over Appleton, he momentarily shut his eyes. He looked again after the train had passed. Appleton had been pushed about 15 feet by the engine. Witnesses said that at the time, a train was passing from Leeds, and probably the noise of this train drowned that of the other train. So there was one train coming... It drowned out the noise of the other train, so he didn't even know the train was coming. Right. The driver of the engine said that he had no idea that he had run over a man until he arrived in Leeds Station when he found a piece of brown jacket hanging onto the exhaust pipes. Mm. The next story was from several years earlier, February 2nd of 1891. It starts out like kind of normal, but just stay with me here. And also, I'm going to butcher this name. Like, we're just going to have to move on. Hey, hey, hey. We, we've all done it. What are you going to do? Mr. Edward Bosanquet? Question mark? Son- sorry, sorry, sorry. Try it. Say it one more time. Bosanquet? Bosanquet. B-O-S-A-N-Q-U-E-T. Bosanquet? That's a tough one. That's It's, you know what? You know, maybe a listener knows how to pronounce that. <laughs> I really doubt it, but you know what? Send me a voice memo if you know. Yeah, please do. Okay. So, Mr. Edward, <laughs> son of the well-known <laughs> English banker, was bitten on Saturday by a rattlesnake while he was out shooting near Dayton, Florida. Oof. The snake struck him on the inside of the leg above the ankle. Mr. Evelyn Walker, which, by the way, it does say Mr. Evelyn Walker, it's like, I guess, a dude named Evelyn, but mm-hmm. anyway. Mr. Evelyn Walker, who was with Mr. <clears throat> immediately applied his mouth to the wound and endeavored to suck out the poison. Then, having tightly bandaged the wounded leg, Mr. Walker raised his friend upon his shoulder and carried him to Dayton. It is feared, however, that all these gallant exertions to save the life of his friend have proved to no avail. 
Mr. Bosenkrant is reported to be in a hopeless condition. Mr. Walker himself is also now seriously ill. It seems that he had a slight cut on his lip and absorbed some of the poison into his system. Oh, no. On his arrival to Dayton, broken down with fatigue, he was seized with an attack which resembled partial paralysis. Last evening, however, he was rather better, and it was believed he was out of danger. Man. Yikes. That's 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 pretty bad. Uh-huh. So, Mr. <clears throat> died. Uh-huh. The other guy was doing better at the time of the printing had started to come around, but like just a little cut on your lip. You don't realize it's there and it absorbs snake venom. <laughs> well, I had heard that the whole, the whole thing of like sucking the venom out mm-hmm. is a complete wives tale of itself. Interesting. That it doesn't, it doesn't work. Right. Because by the time you can, but by the time the, you could even get to it, it's already proceeding through your bloodstream. Right. So you're not going to like catch up with it. You're right. Yeah. That'd but, be pretty wild. But I guess there was just enough. I mean, there's still going to be some, like if you get to it like right away, there's still going to be some there, I guess. Like, I don't, I don't know. Because yeah. if you've ever seen like a snake bite, like this person has lived, they've gotten their treatment or whatever. The wound is still pretty gnarly looking. Yeah. Implying that there is still venom around the site. That's like kind of, messing with the tissue and stuff there and it's also in your bloodstream so it's gonna be too late to like save somebody that way obviously because this guy died yeah but there's still some venom like right there and clearly enough yeah seems that way or maybe i mean like he was in florida the water there is pretty gnarly like maybe he just drank some water and got really sick from that and it's a coincidence yeah totally unrelated we don't know it's it's the 1800s baby anything could happen (laughs) that is true (laughs) that is true all right, so this next one is from the April 30th, 1901 issue, and it's my favorite one that I found from the Yorkshire Evening Post. A few days ago, two gentlemen, this is so good, two gentlemen were cycling from Guildford to London, and when proceeding down Effingham Hill at a fair pace, they overtook a carriage and pair containing two ladies. A small fox terrier belonging to the ladies was gambling about in the road. As the cyclists were passing the carriage, the dog got in front of one of the machines, was run over, and the unfortunate cyclist was pitched with considerable violence into the road. The ladies got out of the carriage and ran to the assistance of the dog, which they fondled and made a great fuss of, and then they got into their carriage and drove away without so much as casting a glance at the ill-starred cyclist who was lying dead in a ditch. Whoa. They're like, is my dog okay? <laughs> and this man is just dead. He's just dead. <laughs> the dog was fine. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. You know, the more things change, <laughs> but people stay the same. Yep. You can see that thing happening like on Facebook or on TikTok right now. And you'd be like, this is a sign of the times. Nah, man. Yeah, no, if I'm just, if there was like an incident involving some random human being and our dog, I would not care about that person except to scream at them. I would be worried about the dog. So. No. That being said, <laughs> if like the person was just like almost instantly dead because they, you know, hit their head on the ground or whatever, I would call 911. 
You, you, you do something. You, right. You wouldn't just put the dog back in the carriage and just keep on going. Without a care in the world. Yeah. Hmm. You know. Yeah. All right. So next we have a story from Jack from the Jackson Citizen printed on November 23rd, 1900. Mrs. Mary Adams, 35, wife of Isaac Adams, a young farmer of Collie, three miles above here, died last night. She prepared her burial gown two months ago. Two hours before she died, she arose, went to her trunk, and dressed in her burial robe, telling her husband she wanted no change made in her dress. Her last words were, Thank the Lord, I'll soon be gone. My suffering is over. She then died. Whoa. Directly over her bed, the clock ceased to tick as the last breath left her. All efforts to start the clock have proved futile. Owing to this strange coincidence, the husband will leave his once happy home. Creepy. That's a really weird story. Yeah. Very little detail. Mm -hmm. But like, so two months ago, she got the burial gown ready. Then a couple hours before she died, she puts the burial gown on. Is like, don't change my clothes. Thank God I'm about to die. I'm sick of it. Lays down, dies. The clock stops. And her husband's like, this is all too much. I got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. Weird. It's weird. It is very weird. I don't blame him. So finally, I'd like to present to you an unusual story from the Marietta Daily Ledger from December 20th of 1900. Mrs. Catherine Alt, aged 44, of Kokomo, Indiana, the other day told her friends that her time had come to die. She was afflicted with asthma, but her case was not considered at a dangerous stage. Mrs. Alt had a collection of flowers on exhibition at the Knights of Pythias Hall at Galveston, eight miles northwest of Kokomo. She took the flowers from the hall to a church, remarking that a funeral would occur there during the week, and those particular chrysanthemums would be appropriate for the casket. She arranged the collection near the pulpit in an oblong square the size and form of a coffin. On leaving the church, she said to a friend, Those are for my coffin, and I will be there this week. She then closed various business matters with neighbors and went home. She retired early, saying to her family, Do not call me for breakfast. In the morning, she was found dead in bed. Death was from natural causes. The funeral took place the next day, just as she had arranged the flowers she took to the church adorning the casket. Wow. Yeah, that is very creepy. That is creepy, although 1900s, I wonder if uh, if she had just found a way to end things without being... Um... Uh, traceable not detectable i mean that's that's definitely possible they did have alienists back then which is like basically they did like autopsies and stuff yeah um but that wasn't i mean of course not everywhere is gonna have it and you're like what eight miles outside of kokomo indiana there might not be a an alienist who's like too worried (laughs) about it but that's just so weird like yeah she has asthma but like she's doing fine Sure. Very strange. Or she just, or seven days prior, she watched The Ring. Oh, you know what? That was probably it. And she was like, well, I got seven days to get my affairs in order. Yeah. Nothing I can do about it now. Yeah. The In case you didn't know, guys, that's actually a little known fact, but The Ring from the 2000s was a remake of um, Ye Olde Ring from 1899. <laughs> so. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, guys, thank you for joining me on this uh, <laughs> deliciously death positive journey. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a rating or review. Check out our Instagram at Fantastic H Pod or shoot us an email at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com to let us know. Stay spooky, my friends. Yeah.